Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be in the pulpit with you and this opportunity to preach God's Word with you. Just think back on this, Acts 12. Peter faced the impossible. What we just read. Peter faced the impossible. He received the supernatural. But did you see that he had to cooperate? That's what I'm faced with this morning. I'm faced with the impossible, preaching John 3, 16. I need the supernatural. I need the Holy Spirit to fill me up and help me out with this because my commission, my command is to stand before you and preach the Word of God, preach the text. We're approaching the most lofty thought in all of Scripture, and I I feel inadequate, and I just ask that before I get started that you would just pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are going to approach uh, a very lofty thought this morning in John 3.16. And as I approach this text... And as we all gather together to approach this text, Father, I just pray that you would take our preconceived ideas and toss them down. I pray that you would take our theological convictions and lay them to the side and allow your word to speak to us. We want to be obedient to your word. We want to be motivated and encouraged by your word. And, and Lord, I just I confess that, that I'm one that would hold my theological convictions over the over the top of this text, and I don't want to do that. I want your word to speak. I want you to speak powerfully and clearly to your people, your church. And so I ask, Lord, that you would do that now, and that you would use me as a tool to allow this message to sink so well into our hearts that we are motivated, as John would have us here, to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles, if you have not already, to John chapter 3. John 3 is the text for this morning. We're to climb the Mount Everest of all scriptures in looking at John 3 today. John 3.16, you know it all too well. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, would you say that text with me? John 3.16, it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is our greatest hope, is it not? We love this text and we need We need this text. What creates our love for this text? The text sits at an intersection. I don't want you to miss it. The text sits at an intersection. The intersection is the intersection of the infinite and the finite, of deity and humanity. And it explains the glory of a reconciliation plan that God had purposed from all of eternity past. The intersection is none other than the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of each and every man. This is a profound text. The greatness of John 3.16 is a direct result of how it explains this intersection, the God-man intersection, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I want you to think on this intersection with me for a moment. As we looked again to the text this morning, maybe by way of illustration, I want you to have in your mind this particular intersection. Have you ever been found in your own life at a place where you are desperate, in fact, helpless, powerless in a situation in your life? Have you ever been in a car accident, trapped, pinned down, bleeding to death, helpless, Maybe you've received an unfavorable diagnosis of cancer. Maybe, just maybe, you're a Republican voter in the state of California. (laughs) 
these circumstances, they illustrate the intersection very well. Though you may be utterly unable, your involvement is needed. Though you may be helpless, you are called upon to have hope. And there's beauty in this intersection. Remarkably, inability always seems to end with duty, responsibility, even a job. Because the paramedic will come to your rescue and demand that you hold on. Because the pastor will come to your house and console you about your cancer and ask that you pray. And the politician promising conservatism will come and demand that you vote. Can you see the intersection? On the one hand, you have no ability And on the other hand, you are given a job and asked to participate. Consider the inability and involvement that came during what is called the Apollo 13 space mission. NASA's third mission to the moon, it launched on Saturday, April 11th of 1970. Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes were expecting to land on the moon on Monday, just two days later, April 13th. But there was an explosion of an oxygen tank that crippled their service module. It effectively made them dead men flying in their command module that didn't have any power. And what was to be a moon landing turned into an incredible rescue mission from 400 miles away from the surface of the earth. Left to their own devices, these three men were helpless Powerless to save themselves. But NASA had the greatest space program in the world. The greatest team of engineers. And they worked to create a plan to save the helpless men. Their power supply was limited. They didn't have heat. The water supply was low. The carbon dioxide that was coming into the cabin was going to kill them. Except that a plan be drawn and commands be given to the men in the lost Module, the death of Jim and Jack and Fred was imminent. But plans were created. Makeshift plans, albeit. Scrapping pieces of the ship together to vent the bad air out. Though awkward, the plans were not questioned. Jim and Jack and Fred entrusted themselves to the NASA team for the best repair options. They believed in other men because they were totally unable to help themselves. Even calculating a plan for the return of the command module to re-enter into Earth's atmosphere, it had to be redrawn, and it was not with their consultation. Jim and Jack and Fred were motivated to believe that this rescue plan would work. They were completely obedient to the commands from the NASA engineers, and on Friday, April 17, 1970, all three men were recovered from the Pacific Ocean alive, safe. They were saved. Their hopelessness ended with hope that a solution would be found. Their powerlessness ended with their participation. Their inability ended with their involvement. Isn't this exactly what we saw when Brother Don read Acts 12? In Peter's escape from jail, he was helpless, but a rescue happened. Isn't this exactly what we know happened with the Israelites leaving Egypt? Again, helpless. John 3.16 is the ultimate explanation of the intersection between inability and involvement. This is the greatest verse of the Bible and the greatest story ever told because it explains the glory of God's sovereignty and regeneration and man's responsibility in salvation. 
And I'd like to share it to you in context because it holds the greatest motivations for belief in Jesus Christ. The greatest motivations for belief in Jesus Christ. This was John's whole purpose in writing this gospel. John 20, 31 says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's look to read John 3 for context now. John 3 is incredible in its scope for you. I really want you to get the whole of the context. This conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus is so important for you to know. It's in this text that we are given the premier analogy of regeneration, which is birth, being born again. So read with me verse 1 to 15 in chapter 3 of John. And I want you to look for the place in the text where this intersection happens, the intersection of inability and involvement. The intersection of sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 3 now. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What do we just see in that text? We saw the most premier, the most prominent, the most well-known and respected teacher of Israel get the biggest spanking that any teacher has ever gotten. Nicodemus is rebuked in this text. Jesus cannot believe that Nicodemus is the teacher of the Jews in Jerusalem and he doesn't understand spiritual birth. And he points that out to him very profoundly. In verses 11 to 12, Jesus says, this is simple truth. And you, from your heart, you don't believe it. He basically says to Nicodemus, you are spiritually incompetent. And Jesus takes another run at it with Nicodemus, trying to get through and and break down this stubborn head of his. And he says in 13, essentially, he says to him, I'm from heaven. 
In 14, he says, I will die a literal, physical, and even highly symbolic death on a cross. The symbol is one that you know well from the writings of Moses in Numbers 21.9 when, when Moses had the Israelites being bitten by serpents because God had sent this to them. And he said, take a, bronze serp- take a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and hold it up. And if anyone looks on the staff with the serpent, they'll be saved from the snake bites. You know that, Nicodemus. This is the symbolic death that I will die is just like that symbol. And finally, in verse 15, Jesus said to Nicodemus, accept this and live. Accept this and live. New birth is the premier analogy of regeneration. Moses and the serpent is the greatest analogy of salvation by faith alone. And Nicodemus has only one option if he is to see eternal life. And the option is believe. I asked you earlier, where in the text is the division between inability and involvement? Where is the line so clearly drawn? Where is it distinct that there is an A and there is a B? It's right here in verse 15, is it not? Spiritual regeneration is a sovereign act of God because because of man's inability. And yet man must believe if he is to be saved. Do you see that powerlessness ends with participation? Our inability does not remove our involvement. Scripture everywhere affirms these truths. They sit side by side. And the fact that our minds at times so little, so frail don't understand and can't comprehend and pull these things together does not diminish the fact that they are both true simultaneously. This is the intersection that God designed for his divinity to interact with our humanity, for the infinite to engage the finite and for the helper to meet with and rescue and heal the helpless. It is only in understanding this intersection, this mountaintop moment that we are ready to see the heights of the summit of John 3.16, as we look at 3.16 through verse 21. And I want you to see in 3.16 to 21, the three greatest motivations for belief. What should cause the motivation for your belief? It's these three great motivations. They are the greatest motivations for belief. We'll see that here in the text. You know, there are challenges as we look to jump into this, into the first greatest motivation. There are challenges to understanding this text. And I would say the first is our own theological presuppositions. Our own theological presuppositions. I carry them. And you carry them. And at the door, we must check them and walk in and understand this text and its context. We're we're guilty of holding on to sacred things, sacred things that man has made. Calvinists, don't get scared now. We'll be all right. First, you must understand the context. We just did that. We're talking about a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus regarding regeneration. Second, in approaching this text, you must understand the primary content. The primary content. In verse 15, we just saw the first use of the word believe. And we're going to see it used five times in four verses as we read from 16 down through the bottom of the text. Belief then becomes this conversation. And salvation is always the aim of belief. So it's a salvation conversation. It's a regeneration conversation. And then it's a salvation conversation. That's the distinction. There's the line. These two conversations. Third, 
is a challenge for us. We need to understand words, definitions, the world, only begotten, whoever, judge. The fourth challenge we'll face is who spoke in this text? Who spoke John 3.16? Are these the words of Jesus or are they the words of the apostle John? Do you know? I would have you know that scholars are divided on this. The, the quotations and the, the red letters in your Bible are not inspired. And, and scholars have presented great questions like, does Jesus typically call God theos or pater, which is God or Father? Well, John 3.16 starts with God. Why would Jesus switch from calling himself Son of Man, his preferred title, to calling himself Son of God in verse 18, which is John's title for Jesus? After studying the text, I believe that these are the words of John, the apostle, not Jesus. It seems that Jesus stopped talking to Nicodemus in 3.15. And what we have next is John summarizing the whole of the gospel in a nutshell in 3.16, and then giving us and explaining for us what he believes are the three greatest motivations to his own faith that you may believe, which goes with the whole intent of his gospel, John 20.31. So let's read the text now, John 3.16 down to 3.21. Let's look at this text. John says to us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When we're reading through this text, motivation to believe is jumping at us. John's whole gospel is written to motivate us to believe, and this text holds the three greatest motivations for belief. The first greatest motivation is the foundation for belief. The second greatest motivation is the greatest salvation that comes from belief. And third, we'll see the greatest manifestation of belief. The foundation, the salvation, and the manifestation. The greatest of each, John presents to us in this text. Let's look first at the first greatest motivation to believe. According to John the Apostle, the, the greatest foundation for our belief. He's going to lay the foundation. Okay, so let's look at this. What is the greatest foundation upon which our faith can rest? In the mind of the Apostle John, the answer is so clear. God's love. The love of God. God's love is John's biggest motivation. And it creates the greatest foundation for belief. The text says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Where is the Apostle John's heart as he thinks on Jesus' last words to Nicodemus? He's thinking about this rebuke that Jesus gave Nicodemus, this, this theological spanking that he gave Nicodemus. 
He's thinking about this, and he's thinking about the regeneration that God is offering and the belief, the believing that you must do in Christ. He's thinking about this, and all that can come to the Apostle John's mind is God so loved the world. God's love. John goes into explaining the love of God. He does this by using the word for, which is seeking to give an explanation. He does this earlier in chapter 2 as well. He, he goes into explaining and clarifying for his audience details about the text, about the conversation. The content of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is his aim now to clear up for us an understanding. He says loved. And here we start to run into these definitions we want to look at. Loved. In Greek, there are three opportunities to speak the word love. The one chosen here is the greatest degree of love, agapao love. This is the highest love, the greatest quality of love. This is unconditional love, the highest of affections. Offering the most generous concern, delight, and esteem for the object that it beholds. John mentions the degree of of the love of God. The degree of the love of God can be seen in the word so. God so loved the world, which suggests for us a significant intensity. And to whom was this intensity of love directed? It was directed to the world. God so loved the world. God intensely loves his creation. He made it. All of it. All of us. We're all grandchildren of Adam and Eve. He loved them. He made them. And we're just their grandchildren. He loves all of humanity. And remember, God formed Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground. He formed Adam of the dust of the ground, and then he handcrafted Eve, the man's wife, from his own rib. You know, many of you have intense love for your own handcrafted items, be that quilts or baked goods. There's some particularly good cookie makers in our church. Maybe a car that you built from the ground up. You, you love things that you handcraft, but none of those things come close to the love that God has for what he handcrafted. The man made after his own image and according to his own likeness. The closest love that you'll ever know to the love of God is the love that you have for your children. But those weren't handcrafted by you. Those were gifts of God's love to you. God loves the whole world. The whole world is what he loves. This is just like God's grace. Who gets God's grace? Everybody gets God's grace. Did the sun rise on you this morning? It rose on the unbeliever too. Did the, sun, did, the, did the rains fall on you alone or did they fall on the unbeliever as well? God's grace is a, is a common grace, but God also has an electing and a special grace. And God's love, there's a common element to God's love, but there is also a particular element to God's love as well. An electing love, a saving love. This is the love of God in the text. This is the common love of God that he has for what he made. He loves what he made. He loves it so much that when this whole thing burns and he starts it all over, we're going to be doing the same things that we were supposed to be doing from the beginning. It's all, this is just so clear to us. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is long-suffering and patient. This is a powerful demonstration of his love for creation, that he didn't kill us all yesterday. Maybe particularly for a few of you because you're looking a little tired. Before last night, at least, he'd have to endure this loss of an hour of sleep. John uses the, the, the word world 
in his gospel 78 times. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's neutral. Often, often it's negative. In this context, it's neutral. It's best understood as the creation or all of humanity. God loves every kind of person without distinction and yet with intensity. He loves every kind without distinction, with intensity. The intensity of God's love is seen in the fact that God's love for the world happens. It continues to happen. He never let it go. It continues to happen despite all of our sinfulness, the sinfulness of humanity. How intensely does God love the world? God loves the world so intently that he acts upon it. He steps down into the world. He acts on it in this way. He gave his only begotten son. And when we think about God's love, it is so important to know and consider that his love is an active love. What love is love if it's not active? His love is an active love. Heaven forbid we as husbands have a love for our wives that doesn't include action, like the rubbing of her feet, which you'll all be doing later tonight. Love is an active love, the active love of God. What does he give? What does he give next? He gives the best of what he is. He gives the very best of his own nature. God gave us of himself. He gave his son. Who among us is like this? Who, which of you loves like this? You don't love like this. If you took your whole family on on a hike up a mountain and you got lost, desperately lost altogether, To the verge of death. And a helicopter shows up. But can take everybody but one person. Which of you says to the oldest son. You'll stay behind. And die. And we'll go and live. None of you would do that. You would choose to die yourself. But you would not sacrifice your own son. None of us love like God. Do we dare to compare our love. To the love of God. Never. Our love is utterly pathetic compared to his because our love is selfish, self-focused love. God's love is pure. It is real because God is love. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. We would not give our only son to die, yet in God's love, this is exactly what he did. And let's consider the only begotten son here. Monogenes is the term in the Greek. It means simply the unique one, the only one, the one and only who was birthed like a man in the flesh. But there's nothing in this word that indicates a creative act, a creation, that Jesus didn't exist. Jesus was not a created being. In fact, we understand from Philippians chapter 2 that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to grasp or hold on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is the love of God for us. That he sent his only son to make a payment for us that we could never make. In our helplessness, in our inability, he acted. It is an intense personal affection, even delight in all of humanity that causes God to act, even to give of himself his very best, his only and unique son. According to 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And we read in the Psalms, the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding 
in loving kindness and truth. So what is your greatest motivation to believe in God? What is your greatest motivation to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What is your greatest motivation? It is like John to move your eyes to the character of God and look specifically at the love of God, for God so loved the world. This is the greatest foundation upon which you must believe, and you must believe. You must, lest you perish. John is not content to give us one motivation, and so we look at the second greatest motivation for belief. But before we do, I want to just launch into this other conversation because there's there's something happening through this text, and I I don't want your eyes to, to miss it. In fact, it'll carry us through the next few of these greatest motivations for belief. And that's the idea that John loves to use contrast. He needs to use contrast. He has to paint contrast all over this text. But we've already encountered the first of these uh, contrasts. You know some of the contrasts. Light, dark, love and hate, saved and perish, truth and evil, judged and not judged. These are all the contrasts that John is going to use and lay out for us. But don't ever in this text miss the first and greatest contrast. It's already occurred. What is the first and greatest contrast of the text? God and the world. Better yet, God and man. The contrast between God and man. This is such a fundamental contrast. He is not like us. We're the created being. He's the creator. Uh, You want to see contrast, just understand that in in context here, what is John talking about in John 3.16? The love of God, right? God so loved the world. Look at verse 19. What's he talking about there? The love of man. What is man love? We're going to get to that. We're contrasting two loves here. We're contrasting God and man in this text. Because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, all of humanity are born spiritually dead to God, which is why we must be born again, John 3.3. The intersection of God's sovereignty And man's responsibility must be understood in light of this contrast. God is holy. Men are evil. This contrast is why we are at the Mount Everest of all scripture passages. The gap that exists between the infinite and holy God and wicked and sin-filled and pride-filled man. And next, we're going to see that John will introduce us to some of these very contrasts when he shows us the greatest salvation from belief. This is the second greatest motivation, the greatest salvation from belief. Where was salvation for the crew of Apollo 13 going to come from? Was it going to come from inside themselves or outside themselves? What if you're trapped in an avalanche of snow? I realize the utter impossibility of this. We're all Pismo Beach dwellers. But just consider with me, because it is a snow season elsewhere in our country. What if it is a snow season and you find yourself trapped in an avalanche, pinned down by hundreds of pounds of snow? How will salvation happen for you? By your own strength or by the strength of another? And what is your job in either case, the Apollo 13 astronaut or the avalanche victim? What is your job in either one? Keep breathing. Well, even God is sustaining that, is he not? Well, what what else do you need to do? You need to obey instructions. God gives salvation to those who simply obey by simply believing. Because that's how he said this happens. 
We see this here in the second half of John 3.16. John repeats the instructions that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. Read with me from the text in the second half of John 3.16 down through verse 18. Look at these contrasts with me. He says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here John gives us several great contrasts. On the positive side, what does he say that you get if you believe in Jesus? In verse 16, you get eternal life. In verse 17, you get saved. And in verse 18, you get not judged. But what are the consequences of unbelief? What are the consequences of unbelief? Perishing in verse 16. Judgment in verses 17 and 18. And what must you believe? You must believe in Jesus Christ that he is the only son of God. Let's define the terms here. Let's, let's take a look at the words. Because we need to know what is the, what is the sense of these words What is the extent of the damage to be found in the words perishing and judgment? Is this a slap on the hand, a little more time in purgatory for the Roman Catholics? And and who are the whoever? Who are these people? Well, let's, let's start here even. Let's look at this. We need to look at the whoever. The text literally says, and I believe it's very helpful in in looking at the, at the Greek text with this particular word, whoever is all those believing. All those believing, the believing ones, they, the believing ones, the one believing, don't perish, but have eternal life. And what is a believing one? Well, the text defines that for us. It's, it's one who trusts. It's one who has faith. It's one who comes, comes to the light and manifests that his deeds were wrought in God. This is a believing one. It's the cancer patient who prays. For God to fix the cancer. It's the astronaut who calmly follows instructions, being submissive to the authorities that are appointed over them. Then we have all these contrasts which help to give us clarity for us. These other contrasts and and how are they to be understood? Well, we need to deal with in the positive side and the negative side. Let's start with the negative side of the equation first. We run into words like perishing, which means to destroy or to kill. And what about the other negative word there? Judge and judgment. This means to decide, to condemn. It has a very, very legal sense to it. As if we're in a court of law and there's a presiding authority, a bigger than you authority, the judge, who must offer a decision and pass a judgment. And also it's important to note that when you're in a judge's house, when you're in his courtroom, This legal setting, it's important to note that the decisions that are handed down are in responses to charges, responses to charges. And the decision must either be rendered guilty or innocent. Either the allegation is true and deserving of of punishment or the allegation is false and the case is thrown out. But there are only ever two outcomes and such is the case here. But there are other factors to consider in these words perishing in judgment as well. First, that the judgment has already happened. Did you see the word already in the text? The judgment has already happened. The text says that the decision has been handed down by the judge already. Verse 18, he who does not believe has been judged already. 
Do you, do you feel what a shot in the arm this is to people who don't believe in hell? The existence of hell is absolutely real. But what about the other side of the equation? What about those who believe that everybody's going to heaven? That's not the case either. What is the cause of this judgment? The cause is unbelief. It's unbelief. And do you realize how many people are affected by this judgment? How many people are affected by this judgment? This is a worldwide judgment. All of humanity falls under this judgment. This is, the, this is worse than any global health crisis or pandemic that the world has ever seen. This is the plague of plagues that our souls would be so stained by Adam and Eve that we start off our life in unbelief. And God has to act on us that we would do that which we were created for, which is to worship him. All of humanity is born in unbelief. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? You're dead. That's where you start off. But look at the word perishing as well in John 3.16. John says that whoever believes will not perish. Whoever believes will not perish. Did, Did you catch that? Belief negates the perishing. Did you catch the idea that if belief negates perishing, then perishing is already set in motion. Perishing is what you deserve, and perishing is what is happening to everyone. Perishing is par for the course. It's the known quantity. It is as sure and certain as the sun rising every morning. A second factor to consider in these these terms, perishing and judgment, is the eternal quality of them, the eternal quality of these words, This is a context, remember, of regeneration and salvation unto eternal life with God. So the judgment described here by John is both spiritual and eternal in its nature. This perishing is the perishing done in hell forever, which comes after the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, when John tells us in his vision, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. According to their deeds. This is the negative side of the contrast in John 3, 16 to 18. How many people do you know read this passage and miss the judgment? How many people throw this verse off their lips and miss the fact that the word says not perish. How many people don't catch the fact that perishing is already part of the plan? How many people read this verse as if it is a golden ticket? This is a golden ticket. If I know these words, I can expect that my knowledge will get me into heaven. I don't need to really trust in Jesus. I just need to have this golden ticket and to be able to flop it out of my mouth whenever I'm asked about salvation issues. You might have family members that act like that, that speak like that. Is that what's going to get us eternal life? John doesn't want you to be in this condition. He wants you to be believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what this is all about. It's motivation for you to believe. Perishing is the plan of all of humanity. But perishing is not the only plan. There's a plan B for humanity. You can believe. And what does belief result in? Well, first we see it results in eternal life. 
us to find this word as well. This is the life of the ages, eternal life, living forever, living the very life of God with God forever, not only in quality, but also in duration. And next we see the word saved, which means that we are kept alive. It means to to spare or to escape, particularly to escape from death. Add to these that last comment about not being judged, and you get excluded from the judgment described earlier. And where should all of these glorious thoughts about escape and rescue and saving and not perishing, where should they cause our minds to turn and go back to a time of perfection and creation between God and man? It should cast our minds all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you remember, eternal life was offered to Adam and Eve in the garden, was it not? In the form of a tree, this tree over here that they decided not to eat from, the tree of life. They could secure eternal life by just taking and eating of its fruit. This is so easily, it probably tasted so good like the the crispy cream of the created order. It could have been for some, the the avocado, the heavenly avocados, just reach over and grab that that pure fruit, fruit that gives eternal life. But we also remember that they didn't choose to go get that. They chose to rebel against God. God removed them from the garden. He kicked them out of the garden. He evicted Adam and Eve from the garden. It was a grace eviction because he didn't want them to have eternal life in their sinful state. If you're going to get eternal life, it should come in a state of perfection and holiness. And God has to do a work on you to make that happen. It's so critical to understand that. Consider the greatness of salvation offered by this simple thing, belief in Jesus Christ. It's no longer a tree. It's not a tree. You don't have to go there You don't have to select and pick a fruit. You don't have to bite in and eat. You don't have to do that. The simplicity of this beautiful message, why we're at this pinnacle moment, is that God took what he offered there in the tree and he brought it down to something so simple. Belief. One requires doing. The other one only requires accepting. God gives us the greatest salvation in belief. And it is only by believing that we can be saved from the perishing and the judgment that we're set for. John Calvin says, For what need was there that Christ should come to destroy us who were utterly ruined? That's us, utterly ruined. God didn't come to destroy us. We were set for destruction from the very beginning. We start off ready to perish. But God sent Christ to save, is what the text says, not to judge, to say, to get us out of the predicament that we found ourselves in, if for once we would only believe God at his word. You get the Garden of Eden opportunity presented to you. The word of God has gone forth. He told them, eat of this tree of life. He's told you something as well. Believe in Jesus Christ. I think you even have it a little easier than Adam and Eve. Could you imagine the disaster if the Apollo 13 astronauts decided to break communication with NASA? Where would that command module be today? But great salvation came through belief. Great salvation came through trust. And that is the call of God on your life. You cannot trust yourself. You cannot do this. Your efforts... Your work, your knowledge, your title, your money, your ambition, 
Nothing that you own or possess can get you into the kingdom of God. All of your accomplishments on this earth are trash to him. All that matters to him is that you believe this simple offer. Believe in his son. Do you see the simplicity and the power of this glorious message? So what do you make of all of your accomplishments and successes? What do you make of them? Can I encourage you to believe like Paul, who said this in Philippians 3 verse 7. He said, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. John is encouraging us to believe just like Paul. Believe in Jesus Christ that he is the son of God. And he has one more motivation for us in this text before we conclude our time this morning. We have seen the foundation of belief and we have seen the salvation from belief. And now we need to see the greatest manifestation of belief. The greatest manifestation of belief. Read this last portion of this text with me. Verses 19 to 21. Text says this. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. John says, this is the determination. This is the determination. This is the outcome. And he shows us the manifestation of two kinds of belief. First, unbelief. What is the outcome, John? What is the determination? What is the judgment? Men love darkness. Quite a contrast from God, isn't it? Quite a contrast from God's love. Men love the darkness. We spoke earlier about this, the difference between God and man. Men are evil and wicked, dead in their trespasses and sins. They love darkness. I'm going to use an illustration now that might offend your lunch sensibilities. But it's so applicable. You'll have to forgive me. Men love the darkness. They operate just like cockroaches. Cockroaches love the darkness. The darkness behind a dirty refrigerator. And they hide there. They take shelter there from the light. They don't want their deeds exposed. And Jesus is the light of the world who came into the world. And what do cockroaches do when the light shines on them? What happens if you pull the refrigerator back to expose them to the light? They run and they hide. They hate the light. This is humanity. All of humanity are cockroaches that run from the light. They hate the light. And what does the text say? Their deeds were evil. And those doing evil hate the light. And they live in fear. If you live in fear, I wonder about your deeds if they're evil. I wonder if you have the love of God abiding in you. This is the manifestation of unbelief. To have fear and to love evil and to hate the light and to stay out of the light. 
Consider that John here has now contrasted the love of men in verse 19 with the love of God in verse 16. And we find that men love evil. They love the darkness. And yet, is it always this way with all of humanity? Has it always been the case? Do men always love evil? No. No, that's not the case. John closes his discussion on salvation with verse 21, where we see the second manifestation of belief, which is the greatest manifestation of belief. It's the greatest manifestation of belief. It is a treasure for us in verse 21, because there's something just so profound here. We've been contending with evil. And John shares with us that there are people of every tribe and tongue and nation, people of all kinds of people without distinction, People, men and women who practice the truth. What does this mean to practice the truth? It simply means to obey God, to perform righteousness, to honor God. And can you feel the joy in what John is saying? There's hope. There are people that are doing this. How are they doing this? He's saying that the refrigerator has been pulled back. The light has come into the world and the refrigerator has been pulled back. And all the cockroaches took off running to get to the darkness, but at least one of them didn't run to the darkness. Instead, this one cockroach slowly walked to the point of the floor that was receiving the greatest amount of light. And it was that cockroach's desire to walk to that light. What could possibly make a cockroach change its nature and walk into the place of greatest light? What could possibly happen? John answers the question. He says in verse 21, the man that would walk into the light is the one that is looking to manifest, which means to reveal or show or display. What does he want to display? He wants to display the deeds that he has been doing. What deeds has he been doing? He has been practicing the truth. Who taught him that? He has been taught by God. His deeds, it says, have been wrought in God. His deeds began in God. They were worked by God. They are accomplished through God, for God, and by God. He wants to show that. The verb tense here is a passive verb. It's an action that has happened to him that now he is wanting to display and bring forward so that God's glory can be made known, which is to say that the man did nothing to change his nature. This is a work that God has done. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians 4 and look at verse 28. What we have here in John's text is the same thing we have in Ephesians 4, 28. We have an answer to the question, when is the thief no longer a thief? When is the adulterer no longer an adulterer? When is the racist no longer a racist? When? Answer? When their nature has changed. You see this in Ephesians 4.28. Paul is speaking to the church. And specifically to believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul commands them. That he who steals in verse 28. Must steal no longer. But rather he must labor performing with his own hands. What is good. So that he will have something to share. With the one who has need. You see that in the text? As a nature change. This is a total change of the nature of a person. No longer a thief desiring to steal stuff from other people, but now one who rather chooses to get a job and to begin working 
and to work so well as to provide for his family and himself to the extent that he has an overabundance. And now he gives to the very people from whom he used to steal. He's no longer a taker, but a giver. You see the the nature of a man can be changed. That's what this text says. This is the greatest manifestation of belief in John chapter 3. That your nature has been changed. That's what John shows us in verse 321. I want you to remember, we were designed by God for worship, for glorifying Him. We left the worship of God with Adam and Eve in the garden, our spiritual forefathers, our literal forefathers as well. When they walked out of the garden, when they were kicked out because they chose to worship self and not God, we went with them that day. But God can give birth again. He can give birth to us spiritually all over again. And where we were made to create, designed for his worship alone in the garden, and we ended that and started worshiping self, we no longer have to worship self. He can change our nature and make us worshipers of him yet again. That's his power. That's his design. That's his purpose. You know, while you're there in your Bible, turn to John 7, and I'll look to close with this. I need to give you the final picture of how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men intersect. Because the ultimate issue in salvation is a worship issue. Who will get the glory for sinners going to heaven? John solves this in John chapter 3, verse 21. The one practicing the truth comes to the light in order that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That this righteousness that he's now practicing is not something that he started, but it's something that came out of the mind of God and came to him. And we need a picture to illustrate this. How is it possible to change the nature of a man? Well, in our text in John 3, we're talking about a conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, right? This is a man who's lost in his wealth and his status. He's a racist. He's full of ethnic pride and all this pedigree that he's been brought up in. But he's a, he's a man who's dead. He's a man who's dead, trying to have a righteousness all of his own. And what did God do in this man? Look at verse 50 of chapter 7 of John. Chapter 7, verse 50, the, the Pharisees want to arrest Jesus. But verse 50 says, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus before being one of the Pharisees, said to the Pharisees, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Nicodemus is found at this point in John 7 defending Jesus. Then after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus in John 19. And he wants to help him to give a a proper burial for the Savior of the world. And so Joseph of Arimathea is going to take Jesus to a tomb in in John 19. And who wants to join in on Jesus' burial plans with Joseph of Arimathea? John 19, 39. Nicodemus, the text says. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 100 pounds weight. Nicodemus' nature had changed by an act of God. He was born again. This picture motivates our belief. How shall our belief be motivated from John 3.16? By knowing the greatest foundation of belief. 
God's love. By knowing the greatest salvation that comes from belief, being saved from perishing and saved unto eternal life. And by knowing the greatest manifestation of belief, that true believers, the born again, practice the truth and give all glory of their lives to God. Do you see the intersection? Do you recognize your own inability and at the same time, your call for involvement? Is this you? Are you born again? If you don't know, and if you're not sure or certain about these things, I ask that you would come and talk to Pastor Eric and I, any one of the elders. We would love to pick up this conversation with you. Don't leave here today without answering this question in your own heart. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, I hope that you have seen the motivation to believe. But answer that question in your own heart. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And if you are a believer, do you practice the truth? And do you love living in the light? We'll end there. The Lord has convicted us enough and motivated us enough as well. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for this congregation, for this body of believers in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the opportunity to motivate them to be encouraged in our faith, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I pray, Lord, that all of us would walk in the truth, that we would walk in the truth, practicing the deeds that you had prepared from beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we would manifest that you have wrought this work in us and not we ourselves. We praise you for this work of regeneration. And Father, we do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In his name we pray, amen.